The value of investments can fall as well as rise and losses may be made. This is not a buy, sell or hold recommendation for any particular security. We have just returned from COP28 in Dubai. Almost 100,000 country delegates, NGOs, private sector representatives were present. 10 days of negotiations, thematic days covering gender, water, finance, energy, a venue bigger than the City of London itself, step counts averaging well into the 20,000s, early mornings, late nights, lots of talk on climate action. And I think as 91 since COP26, we have made the commitment to really engage and and be present in the policy and and multi-party level conversations that are happening today around climate change, Um, identifying what role we can play, how we can contribute, how we can help influence those outcomes, and also what that means for us, for our business, for the way that we invest. This is an integral part of our sustainability with substance approach. We principally focus our efforts around uh, finance day at COP, but I think this year we we really went um, beyond that, engaging in in both country level um, discussions, but also more more broadly what the finance sector and what the private sector can can really do to help move the needle. John, this is ninety one's third COP. What made this one different from from Sharm El Sheikh and from Glasgow um, two years ago? Thanks, Annika, and uh, good morning, everybody. Yes, I mean, what what made it massively different for me was actually the venue. I think that the UAE really put at the top of its agenda engaging the private sector, finding ways to get private sector to think more more actively about how to balance return and and impact, and and that just stood out for me from every direction. You, you had in a in a very different way. A really cross-cutting engagement about particularly how to think about financing in a productive way for end stakeholders, uh, the climate transition. So that was the first uh, high-level observation. I, I think the second for me has been this term transition, which actually uh, back in Glasgow was not a term that was used very proactively at all. And in fact, there was divestment was was the principal conversation happening uh, in, in, in Glasgow. But the, the, the point about transition as the journey to uh, net zero by 2050 has just taken center stage. And I think that that really uh, is recognition of the fact that not only is beating the climate challenge something that all of humanity must embrace, including uh, the public sector and the private sector, but also individuals, but also the practicality of that journey. You know, you can't wake up tomorrow morning and suddenly take a process that is massively carbon intensive and change it to one that isn't carbon intensive. There needs to be intent, there needs to be investment, there needs to be a process of discovery and and of innovation, and that that is what ultimately is going to help humanity beat the problem. And and so the, for me, the fact that transition had, has become a word that's right at the center of these discussions is also, uh, for, for me, a, a big change, and, and it's great to see. I think fin- finally for me, um, the, the question of the transition in developing and emerging economies has just got so much more of a focus. I think when, when we first, as 91, sort of put it on the table in many of the discussions we were in, 
in Glasgow, we sort of got blank stares and people didn't really understand what we were talking about and why is this an issue, et cetera, et cetera. And, and as we explained that, that uh, developing and emerging economies are responsible for more than 60% of emissions and, and will be responsible for, you know, 90 to 100% of the growth in emissions in the next uh, 20 years. That has finally, I think, been recognized. And so this ecosystem is thinking about how to address that. And so I think from from our point of view, very, very encouraging to see the change uh, and, the, and the moves. That, yeah. So I think just to summarize that, I think COP historically has been all about policy and, and you know, the biggest lever for change in climate is setting strong policies. But the other, you know, policies can only be effective if finance back them. And so I think, um, you know, that venue really lent itself to bringing in the private sector to um, hosting cross-cutting whole of ecosystem conversations where MDBs are at the table, asset owners are at the table, asset managers are at the table, small-scale project developers are at the table, insurers are at the table. It was a real moment of recognizing that you need the entire ecosystem to move the needle. And transition, and I would add that transition in emerging markets was a very big thematic that came out of almost every conversation. John, moving on to almost what we saw as the sort of progress made and highlights, and I think specifically if we can focus on the climate finance and transition finance agenda, what for you stood out as um, some of the key moments? I think the first thing for me was that there's a much more focus on how to make the JP partnerships work. Uh, so that for those that uh, the short in, shorthand for just energy transition partnerships is JP, uh, you'll probably recall that South Africa secured at Glasgow a very significant pledge to support a just energy transition process. Uh, numbers were thrown around of around $8 billion, I think was sort of the, the the gross value of the commitment made by a group of developing countries to support the, the, the just energy transition program in South Africa. I have to say that, uh, that we have been really concerned and disappointed with how slowly the implementation of that partnership and program has, has progressed. And um, being part of conversations which were really deep drilling into what is going wrong here, how do we fix this, how do we turn these commitments and the thinking, which all of it is very good, and for those of you who haven't had the chance to read um, the transition plan created by the presidency uh, in support of this this Just Energy Transition Partnership, uh, you know, you should take the time to do so because it's, it's reasonably impressive. The problem is, is that is that not enough is happening, and and so the focus in on how to make JPs work. There are now three of them, so there's commitment being made to Indonesia and Vietnam as well, and I think that that's also going to up the stakes because there'll be a bit of country competition, there'll be a bit of opportunity to highlight successes, um, and and I think it'll ratchet up the orientation around delivery. 
And John, you and I saw you. We were in the essay pavilion uh, for a couple of sessions, and we saw some really interesting and also promising, like real world progress made, and 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 also highlighting the kind of, you know, transitioning in a coal economy is is difficult. CCUS is expensive. It's big. We saw that project developer geologist who um, explained the first CCUS project in South Africa, how big it is, how expensive it is. Bringing that to the fore and into the conversation is super important when we think about pushing for those types of ambitions. Absolutely. And I mean, that was another overall takeout for me. There was real practical, hard discussion. You know, it wasn't like, yeah, we should do this and everyone kind of having a, a, a moment. It was really about, do you know that you've got to drill two kilometers under the ground to basically uh, store carbon uh, that you extract from the atmosphere and you know how much it costs, et cetera, et cetera. So, so, so that was, that was uh, I think, a, a really positive because what's happening now is, is, is the engagement with these real on-the-ground issues. Uh, I, I would like to see South Africa really push the pedal now on the JP and 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 begin to pick out components of that plan that can that can happen and can work. I, I think the 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 flip side of of that conversation was a recognition that actually the political process in in country level commitments is an incredibly difficult process. Politicians, ruling ruling parties across the world have such a balancing act, uh, which I would I would argue is now bordering on the impossible because um, you know they've all made and many 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 countries in different shapes and forms have made a commitment to, as part of the Paris Agreement, not all of them as we know, and that was easy because it was it was a 30, 40 year commitment a long way away, and now the practicalities of what that means is beginning to take hold. I think that's why you're seeing a bit of the standoff uh, right now. Yep. In terms of policy level conversations, the flip side of that, which which was really encouraging for me, is to see how the corporate sector is really going gangbusters on on finding innovative solutions, finding ways of changing processes that are both impactful and economic, finding ways to generate clean power for their own production facilities. And and I think that that's what's uh, for me, and and we felt this, uh, I think, coming out of twenty six, a little bit dampened in in twenty seven. But that for me was the takeaway. So some of the you know, walking through the pavilions in the green zone and seeing how companies are finding ways to innovate and do really interesting stuff. I mean, I I, I got to a particular part of. Uh, of the, the green zone, twenty minutes early, and had the the privilege of of spending uh, twenty minutes just really getting to understand how the progress in uh, small modular nuclear reactor technology is has taken giant leaps in the last three years, and how that is potentially going to affect um, affect the ability to deliver clean energy. At scale um, uh, across the world, but most importantly in uh, in developing and emerging economies. And and Annika, you you I know mentioned to me your experience at uh, at, at the Mitsubishi stand, I think it was, and and what they're doing. Yes, 
Mitsubishi had an amazing stand in the Japanese pavilion um, where they were showcasing their circular um, microgrid systems that they were piloting in in Japan. Um, Green hydrogen generated off the back of solar that was on the top of off-the-grid hospitals, storage that was um, implemented in every community within within a region in, in Japan and just showing you how innovation was was actually thinking about small but small that can scale. Another real highlight for me was in the kind of built environment section, um, ph- photovoltaic cells that were that were transformed into windows. So entire, you know, multi-story buildings were generating their own power through windows alone. And that's the type of innovation that's happening at a company level that can help regions, that can help countries decarbonize. Yeah, I also had the opportunity to spend time at the Mazda stand. Now, Mazda is one of the largest renewable energy constructors and producers in the Middle East, but more broadly in in emerging and developing countries across the world. And uh, the experiences that they've had and how they fine-tuned their process of construction and and then commissioning of uh, renewable energy systems across solar, wind, uh, and others is, is amazing. I think that the timeframes now to implement Almost industrial scale uh, solar power uh, solutions is coming in at below 18 months. And if you contrast that to building a large coal fired power station, as we know in South Africa, that can take uh, 10 to 15 years. And so you've gone from 10 to 15 years to below 18 months to deliver industrial scale uh, renewable power. I think the biggest lesson there is leave yourself enough time at COP to learn you know, walk around and immerse yourself because there is so much exciting innovation going on. Also so much hope to be drawn from that type of innovation, sometimes in a in an environment where you feel like there is none. And I would say from the companies all the way through to the sort of the, the sort of people conversations that were happening within the co- pavilions, you know, local indigenous communities um, in South Africa, we saw communities from Mpumalanga turning up and, and really talking about how um, this is affecting them in their in their daily lives. It's affecting communities. It's affecting microeconomies. It's those types of conversations and and learnings that we take away that make our strategy richer, that make our perspective more globalized and and more real. Um, you're absolutely right. The UAE has has showed real commitment and and real leadership, and I think the orientation uh, around mobilizing private sector capital to play uh, its role is is i think ha- and did change change the discussion without doubt we are still encountering a, a strong belief in 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 the sort of the developed world capital ecosystem that investing in the transition is is one in which you can have impact but you 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 forgive returns and and that is is one which I think is increasingly uh, not the case on the ground, uh, and certainly where 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 we deal with companies across developing and emerging economies who are leading uh, transition, those those businesses typically are accorded premium valuations, and uh, and over time we think their customers will value 
their outputs uh, as being low carbon outputs, and 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 they will benefit. They will benefit uh, from that. But what we need is we we need a mechanism to unlock both the uh, the programs that these businesses can implement. So 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 deep drills into best practices. If you have a if you have a industrial company in Vietnam and one in Mexico and one in Thailand, all doing similar things and trying to reinvent how to decarbonize their processes, that's a crazy thing to do on your own. And so mechanisms that can connect those dots are really, really important. And we see this Global Climate Center as doing that. So how do you fast track the ability for companies to transition? Because that's what we're backing. We think that the company-driven transition is going to be 50% of the answer uh, in the long run, and and so how do you do that in a way that is uh, that is faster and more efficient? You create a center of excellence and knowledge. So that's step number one. I think step number two is is to give uh, institutional private sector capital owners uh, the ability to interrogate uh, investment opportunities to the level that that they need and demand. They often are fiduciaries. In most cases, actually, they're fiduciaries. And they can't just invest without understanding long-term return potential, risk, uh, and a whole lot of aspects that uh, in this space are still relatively new. So creating within a global center the ability for uh, institutional capital owners to engage and understand what they might uh, be able to take on in a, in, a, in a way that balances for them impact and return in the right kind of way, I think will be a potential catalyst to private sector capital getting far more active. And and ultimately, if as humanity we're going to beat the climate challenge, that has to happen. And so we see this Global Climate Center not only providing those two critical elements to, to, to the path, but also off the back of real commitment to do that themselves. And so this is, this is I think, the perfect combination. And as 91, we want to be part of it. And I think, John, just to add to that, and this is a reflection on COP more broadly, but specifically with that center, you know, 91, we are a very specific player in the market with a track record and experience that I think is extremely valuable at this point in the game of where we are trying to um, shift institutional global capital into emerging markets for commercial return. That is what we have done for 32 years. And why we are invited into those circles, why we are showing up and taking a seat at the table is because it is very important to show that that is possible. If we are going to achieve scale, the scale that is needed to reach net zero, the scale that is needed to um, drive solutions in emerging market countries in continents like Africa, then the commerciality of it is is very important to prove. And why we keep showing up at COP, why we keep showing up in these panels and these roundtables and why we support the likes of the Global Center is to create that proof point. All right. So just to summarize, I think COP28 had many successes we didn't even cover, you know, loss and damage. We didn't cover adaptation. We didn't cover um, the GCF. But 
lots of successes. There are still challenges that go far beyond COP, the challenges of fossil fuel phase out, of of methane capture, of um, equity and social justice. These will be topics that we see um, next year and the years to come. But I think from 91's perspective, a really positive experience. We're very proud of of what we achieved, what the the UAE achieved um, thus far. And uh, we look forward to continuing engaging on specifically mobilizing capital for the emerging market transition. So thanks, Annika. I mean, my overriding takeout from our time at COP was that we're in a better position to really understand the impact of the climate transition on the companies we invest in for our clients. And and that is an important, a really important consideration. As 91, we committed to sustainability with substance as our approach, and therefore understanding both the risks and the opportunities uh, is critical. And what increasingly uh, we're seeing is the opportunity to deliver and participate in investments that have real-world impact but also deliver competitive commercial returns. This podcast is a marketing communication and is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views of the podcast are those of contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of 91. In South Africa, 91 is an authorised financial services provider.